Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to, to worship you, to learn from your word, and just as we get to continue to do that uh, throughout the day and uh, have fellowship with one another with our meal. And uh, Lord, just what a privilege to be able to gather together as your body. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us as we uh, continue our study on the atonement. That, our understanding would just continue to increase. Um, these would be things that we would meditate on uh, just throughout the week and the various situations of our lives. Uh, Lord, that they would be a help to us, uh, that we would um, see how they apply to uh, all the difficulties that we face, the temptations we face. Um, and um, Lord, just that uh, you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ that you would be glorified in us. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Alright. So, last time we left off in the middle of Isaiah 53, but we're going to go ahead and uh, do review again real quick. Um, so, our first topic for Doctrine of the Atonement was the centrality and necessity of the crucifixion. Who can tell me what we're talking about there? If you answered that question last week, then let somebody else do it. But I don't remember who answered what. So. Centrality being uh, that crucifixion is necessary for uh, atonement and our salvation. Okay. Um, and the necessity uh, being uh, a perfect sacrifice mm -hmm. was needed uh, uh, as payment for our sins. Okay, yeah. That's good on the necessity. Um, the centrality, we had kind of a slightly different emphasis okay. than what you're talking about. Um, what, what, does anybody else remember what we were talking about with the centrality of it? It had to be necessarily the way that have to be the way that it happened. Could have been any other way. Could have been. Okay. Yeah, that, that all just kind of is under necessity, but there was a different idea that I was going for with centrality. But I mean, yeah, that's the, that's true, but it's that's really just a part of the necessity. That's what had to happen in order for God to save us was the crucifixion. Does anybody remember? Is it uh, to incur God's wrath for our sins? No, that's that's propitiation there. Okay, that's what yeah. I have in mind. Okay, yeah, the centrality is the idea that as you look at the gospel preaching in the New Testament, you see that the message of the cross is central. Um, that's that's the main thing that they're talking about. There's all sorts of you know biblical truths that they could be talking about, and you know you look at a lot of gospel preaching today, and there's all sorts of things that aren't even biblical truths that people make central to their gospel proclamation. But when we talk about the centrality of the crucifixion, at least what I'm trying to emphasize by that, is the idea that that is the center of the Christian gospel message. Um, we have uh, Paul going so far as saying, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, and you, you look through the, the book of Acts where people are preaching the gospel, uh, you know, whether it be Paul or Peter or whoever it is, you will see that the crucifixion is central to their message. Uh, just the idea that Christ um, 
died to pay for our sins, and that is, I mean, you know, the, the necessity is there in the the fact that they bring it up over and over again. So, um, reconciliation. We talked about reconciliation. What's the idea there? We've been made right with God. Okay. Yeah. Go, it's so. the idea of going from a state of being uh, estranged from God and hostility to a state of peace with God. Of uh, that hostility is gone. So yeah, that's right. Substitution. Christ taking our place. Yeah. Yeah. Christ. What Christ did, He did in our place. He was our substitute. And propitiation. Satisfied God's wrath. Yeah, satisfied God's wrath. Um, and then we had uh, redemption and ransom. That's the idea there. Being saved from the penalty of sin and death, and also being uh, delivered from the power of sin. Okay, yeah. yeah. Those were elements of that. So, yeah, just the idea of, of God buying us back um, and delivering us from those, uh, those powers that we struggle with. Um, triumph over Satan? That through the crucifixion uh, we've conquered sin mm-hmm. and it fills prophecy from or you know, prophecy from the beginning uh, mm-hmm. when God laid down the curse. Uh, mm-hmm. But he said that the woman's son would crush the head of the mm-hmm. serpent. That's right, yeah. So yeah, it's Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Not just to save us, but also to destroy the works of the devil. Um, So then we started talking about um, types and prophecies of of the crucifixion, of the atonement um, in the Old Testament. And so we talked about types first, which are basically just pictures. Um, They're things that happened... Uh, or institutions that were set up that God used to basically prefigure the 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 truths of the atonement. So we looked at like the Passover. We looked at the Day of Atonement. Uh, we looked at uh, Abraham going and uh, offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. Things that that had you know events that had parallels with the truths of uh, of what Christ accomplished when he came. And then we started looking at prophecy, which is just more like direct, here's what's going to happen. And so there we were looking at Isaiah uh, 53 and the prophecy of the suffering servant. So, let's see. We only got partway through that. Um, I believe we got through verse 9. Does that look right to those of you who were here? I'm going to have a little bit of discussion back on verse 8 after I did some checking, but we'll just we'll start just by talking about um, verse 9, or sorry, verse 10 just a bit. Um, so verse 10, it says, uh, yet he was, sorry, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Uh, he has put him to grief. Uh, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So, 
There's something interesting right there in that very first phrase. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What What do you think of when you see that? Does that seem strange at all, counterintuitive? I mean, I suppose if you know all your theology, it shouldn't. But. It, it very much uh, shows that one, this didn't just happen by, it wasn't by happenstance, it was planned out, mm-hmm. and two, it was the only way mm-hmm. to, to accomplish. Yeah, 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 it's, it's all, it was part of God's sovereign plan, it was his, his will, his desire to punish Christ in order to accomplish our salvation, which, again, that, does, that goes right back to the discussion of the necessity um, of the crucifixion. Now, the, the other part here in uh, verse 10 that I think is interesting, this is actually what I was looking for last time. Uh, we had that discussion about uh, generation and what does it mean, and I was thinking that I was, I was thinking there was a follow-up in Psalm 22, but it was actually just right here in Isaiah 53, and I forgot. Um, so here it says uh, that when, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Um, and so um, the idea there, I mean, obviously is um, the idea of living on and the idea of having children, which we're seeing that, that this suffering servant is being put to death. Um, and the other thing that, that I was trying to put together was the idea that it's already said he doesn't have any children. And so this is kind of like a contrast where it's like, okay, he's, put to, he's being put to death. He has no children, but he lives on and has children. So it's kind of kind of pointing to the resurrection in that sense, and the idea of having spiritual children in that the the church is uh, his progeny. And I, I just trying to do some research, I discovered that that where I picked this up was actually just from um, as a as a younger Christian, the the first several years. The NIV was primarily what I used for my uh, for my Bible, so I went back and looked at what the NIV has there. And in verse eight, um, it says, uh, "By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken." And so there is like I just kind of like tied that in that it's like okay, it's saying he doesn't have any children, and then in verse ten it's saying, "Oh yes, he does have children." Um, and doing some research in commentaries, um, I've discovered that while that's one option, it's actually a really debated question about what does it mean by uh, generation. So I'm not going to insist that the NIV is correct, and I haven't. I can't say that I'm that I've studied it enough to know for sure what is the proper interpretation of generation. But I saw lots of good commentators taking all sorts of interpretation of what it means um, when it when it says um, what is it uh, yeah as for his generation so there's there's actually at least like half a dozen different interpretations that there's people give so anyway but I did want to explain kind of where I was coming from there and I was I think I was clearly just influenced by the familiarity with the NIV, and when I 
when I did NASB or ESV, it's like I just assumed that that's what it meant. So, so hopefully that clears that up from, from last time. Um, but clearly we do have the idea here that um, he is being put to death, but yet um, it says that uh, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. And so I think we do still have a, a clear indication of the resurrection right here in this, um, in this suffering servant prophecy. So any thoughts or comments about that? Well, I apologize for not, not being as clear as I could have on that last week. Um, verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, uh, sorry, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So what do we see here? What... What do we see in this verse that that points to the realities that we see in the New Testament? Does it remind you of any New Testament passage at all? Quiet group this morning. Think of Romans uh, five. I think it's nineteen. Okay. Whereas by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I the idea there of um, by this one man, uh, many becoming being made righteous. Um, another passage uh, with the basic same import, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, well-known passage. Uh, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, we you know, very much have just the idea of exchange there, the, the idea of... Um, the anguish by the anguish of his soul, um, he shall see and be satisfied. And so he's the wrath of God is being poured out on him. And again, we've seen this throughout Isaiah 53. Um, and so he is, you know, being made sin on our behalf. Um, but he is the righteous one, and uh, by his deeds, uh, he is going to make them righteous. So he bears their iniquities, but he makes them righteous. So definitely the, in the idea of substitution, the idea of propitiation, all those things are are tied up in that. Um, verse 12, unless anybody has any more comments there. Uh, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How about this? 
what do we see here? looks like he's talking about how Christ is our portion. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I think of not the New Testament passage of Psalm 73, uh, 25 and 26. It says in there, God is our portion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also a nation of, of priests now. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the Levites, the priests, mm-hmm. that was their portion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a... That's a good point. Yeah, and and I think Peter picks up on that idea of being a, a nation of priests. Um, a royal priesthood. That's that's the word. What's that? Royal priesthood. That, I think that's the. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Sorry. Anything else? There's actually uh, this is directly quoted in the New Testament at one point. Does anybody know what that passage is? That phrase there, he was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, in uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, uh, Jesus speaking, he says, "For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me." And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What does that mean? That he was numbered with the transgressors. I've got two different thoughts with that. I mean, okay. I'm not, this is, I, I'm still trying to, mm-hmm. so. Uh, one is, uh, he was uh, just, he, is, he was crucified mm-hmm. side by side with mm-hmm. two guilty uh, criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other would, is more numbered as a transgressor as by taking the punishment for our sin and okay. going, uh, going to hell for us and mm-hmm. t- taking on that as mm-hmm. being numbered with the transgressors as we won't because he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's certainly theologically true. I'm I'm inclined to think that's not really what that's talking about. I think your first one is more the thing. Um, and in the context, I think uh, Jesus is actually just speaking more broadly that he's being viewed as a transgressor by the people because this is actually slightly before he's arrested. Um, so, I mean, I think just the fact that you know the the Jewish leaders come out and arrest him, they're they're counting him as a transgressor. Um, but and part of that is that he's crucified, you know, right along with people who actually are transgressors. Um, but the implication is that he's not a transgressor. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So. That is true. He's. Uh, it's. I mean, it says you know very very clearly here in Isaiah 53 that you know that he is he is the righteous one, but he's counted as a transgressor. So it's it's possible that it has some of the other import, which is certainly theologically true. Well, so. Like I said, it was kind right. of uh-huh. right. This is where I tend to think, right. but. Right. Um. And uh, let's see, it says he bore the, the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So he's, he's counted as a transgressor, though he himself is not, but he makes intercession for the transgressors. Um, does that ring any New Testament bells for anybody? Yeah, I mean, it talks about how Christ intercedes for us even mm-hmm. now in heaven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near 
to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. Even, uh, even in the book of Acts, when you see uh, the apostles before chapter 5, you see the apostles before the, uh, the council, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus even now sits at the right hand of the Father and he tells them, you know, hey, you know, you're interceding for you. Mm-hmm. And then they beat him. But, you know. Yeah. 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 So, so there's a, a little survey. Um, I, I apologize for any people who weren't here for both of it. But both, you know, for both uh, this week and, and last week. But there's a little survey of Isaiah 53 and some of the some of the little elements we can draw out of it that show um, things that happened um, in the New Testament. So now let's take a look at Psalm 22, also a very well-known passage um, that. Uh, has a lot to do with the the crucifixion of Christ. And even if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, um, I think almost everybody will catch the connection with the very first verse in Psalm 22. So Psalm 22, we'll just walk through this one. Um, starts off in verse 1 my God my God why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning does that ring bells I'm, I'm sorry I'm a little hard of hearing so yeah Exactly. He cried out those exact same words when he was on the cross. Um, So Matthew 27, verse 46. And it says, uh, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, as he's on the cross, he actually quotes uh, the beginning of Psalm 22. Any thoughts as to the to the import of this? I mean, what is what is this uh, what is this cry? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Reading the entire psalm, it's like a psalm of deliverance that David was reading. He even says in verse 7, All who see me mock me, and they, uh, they make their mouths at me, and they wag their heads. Mm-hmm. A little bit of foreshadowing there, too, because, you know, mm-hmm. he, he says, uh, verse 8, He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Mm-hmm. It's like almost like word for word. Right. Where is he saying? Right. <laughs> You're jumping ahead of me. We're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, there's there there are lots of parallels in this passage. Um, but, um, yeah, clearly you see just um, the idea of, of one who is in great distress and calling out to God for help. Um, and that's, I mean, clearly that is the situation that, that Christ was in. Um, he continues um, 
verse 2, uh, Oh my God, I cry by day, uh, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And then he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So, um, you know, it begins with yet, so we have a contrast. So what's what's being said here? In verse 3 through 5. So the first couple verses, he's crying out in distress. And then what's he doing right after that? Affirming the character of God, mm-hmm. that he's trustworthy, he is holy, he's not going to forsake those yeah. he loves. Right, yeah. Um, and this is... Get the right verse here. Yeah, in First um, Peter... Uh, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Um, we actually talked about this um, last time as we were talking about Isaiah 53, but there's another element of it here. Um, it says, uh, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So... Um, just the idea there that, that he did. He continued to entrust himself to God. Um, and that's that's what we see in the psalm, you know, is uh, the person in distress, but um, recalling the character of God and putting his trust in God because of those things. Um, going on with verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the Lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him and as Ryan pointed out that's um, that's almost a, a direct quote um, go back to Matthew 27 again Thirty-nine through forty-four says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, "You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross." So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him, if he desires him. Uh, For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So, it is fascinating. Um, You know, you would think that the, the scribes and the chief priests and all that would would be familiar enough with the scripture not to not to just quote this against themselves but um, apparently they didn't see the connection so um, 
but yeah, that was that was Christ's situation on the cross, as he was um, just being reviled by basically everyone around him. Let's look at the next section here, um, starting in verse nine. It says, "Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust." At my mother, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts, and uh, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one, uh, and there is none to help. So, what do we see in this passage? In this, in these three verses. anything that you think of in the New Testament that has any parallel here? obviously something special about him and his entire mm-hmm. childhood and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you think of like the, the instance when uh, he's a young boy and he's, you know, taken to the temple and yeah. I mean you definitely see that like you know throughout all of Jesus' life uh, he was very dedicated to his father. Obviously, no direct quotation from anything here, but um, I think that I think that idea is carried forward. Um, and then, uh, very similar to what we've uh, seen earlier, with just the the general despising um, of him. Um, verse twelve it says, "Many bulls encompass me; strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Uh, they open wide their mouths at me, uh, like a ravening and roaring lion." So again, just he's just encompassed by enemies, right? Um, everyone is against him, and um, all of his supporters have have fled for their lives. Um, and then it says, uh, "I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Uh, my heart is like wax; it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, uh, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death." Any thoughts on that? It's a clear picture of just the suffering that he was enduring as he hung on the cross. You get some more explicit stuff as we continue. Um, For dogs encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Stop there for a second. That's a that's a pretty explicit one there. Yeah, Um, and and um, history indicates that crucifixion did not exist when this psalm was written. So that's it's definitely a very interesting one. 
I don't remember who it was that invented crucifixion, but I, I believe it was a few hundred years later before somebody came up with executing people that way. Um, he continues, uh, I can count all my bones and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and uh, for my clothing they cast lots. That one should be pretty pretty familiar, right? Yeah, that's in uh, John 19. Um, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, uh, one part for each soldier, uh, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So there John is just even just like telling us, Yeah, this is a direct fulfillment of the, the passage in Isaiah. Then he continues, uh, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Um, So there again, we just see him just, again, crying out for deliverance. Um, And then we have, um, it kind of shift just a little bit in the tone, uh, in starting in verse 22, he says, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised, despised or abhorred the, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So what do we see there in that passage? Where it shifts there in 22 through 24. What is the shift? How is this different than what we've been reading before? Instead of describing the suffering and with the correlation of the suffering of Christ, this is proclaiming the glory and power of God. Um, and if, if we follow the same path, it's, it would be like the, the apostles proclaiming what Christ has done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also looks like it points to the exaltation of Christ in there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure verse 24 if they're talking about how because he was talking, go, my God, my God, do not forsake me. Mm-hmm. And so on, but he's continuing to trust himself to the Lord. I'm not sure in verse 24 if they're talking about how God didn't forsake him and he raised him from the dead, or if they're talking about just the general character of God not um, hiding his face from the affliction of the afflicted. Okay. Uh, I can see it going either way there. Yeah. But it does, it does seem to be talking a little bit about the fact that he servant is exalted uh-huh. in a way and he is right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's right. I think it's 
it is kind of a just a recognition of praising God for actually delivering him. Um, that though he was forsaken, though he was in distress and despised, um, that God, in fact, did hear his cry for deliverance and uh, and delivered him. Um, Hebrews five seven um, is uses similar language. Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So, um, just the idea of uh, crying out to God because of his distress. And not, not that he was delivered from death in the sense of that he didn't go through death, but he was delivered from death in that death was not permanent for him. Um, he was, in fact, resurrection, re- resurrected. And so even though he went through this distress, uh, he went through his humiliation, he was exalted afterwards. And, um, you know, and points all the praise to God uh, for this deliverance. Any thoughts on that? Continuing on, verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Uh, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Um, Again, just the idea of praising God for delivering from this distress. Um, And then it says in verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now this is an interesting one. Um, What's going on here? He's being put under Jesus' footstool. Sorry, say that again? Everything's being put under Jesus' footstool. Mm-hmm. He's being, it's, uh, it's Ephesians 6 1. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he made him head over all things. And, uh, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's lots of other passages that speak of this too. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 The, there's another aspect too. Mm-hmm. Um, where he's talking about this atonement being applied to all the nations, mm-hmm. which would have been huge, mm-hmm. you know, because the Jews would have thought of themselves as God's people, but right. not really that others would have benefited from God's goodness as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that that specifically was the was the thing I wanted to to draw out of this was just the idea that like right here we have um, a prophecy that when when uh, when this happens. It's not just for the Jewish people, but that it goes out to the nations, which is you know what we see is that um, the you know that's, that's one of the one of the interesting things you see in the New Testament how um, the you know the we have this you know promised Christ who will come and save his people Israel, but then and you know and and God very rarely saved people 
who were not part of Israel during the Old Testament period. I mean, it was there was occasionally it would happen, but most of the time it was it was people who were within the nation of Israel. And so then you see in the New Testament this this amazing shift where um, the the gospel begins to go out to the nations. Um, and you, I think you see you know, that that's that's what's being prophesied here um, is that is that when this redemption is accomplished. Um, part of what happens there is just the opening of the floodgates to all the nations to receive the gospel. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it's it is kind of funny to me how it seems so strange to the people in the New Testament when this happens that you know it's like what this is salvation is going to the Gentiles too you know um, but it, it was prophesied. So. Um, and then. Uh, the last part there, uh, verses uh, 29 through 31, so all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall uh, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So... What do we see here? People who are alive, people who are dead, people who are not born. Yeah. They all worship. Yeah. Yeah. Think of Philippians too, where every knee shall bow, mm-hmm. you know, before him. Yeah. Even in the Old Testament, you see uh, <coughs> Passover of the night with the. Uh, the angel of death comes through, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, when God is describing to them, you know, hey, this is what you're going to do. This is how you know, it's going to be a ceremony forever for you. And, you know, you tell it to your children's children about why you do it. And your children mm-hmm. will tell it to their children. It's a mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, when when this was written, obviously, you know, all of us were were not yet around yet. Um, but the the gospel message is, you know, is still powerful through the centuries, uh, reaching even to us. Any other thoughts? We didn't have the New Testament. None of this would make any sense to us either. It just like everybody in the first century when Christ was in the world. Uh-huh. The disciples, they didn't understand it. Right. The Pharisees, they didn't understand it. Right. We wouldn't understand it if we didn't right. have the New Testament. Right. Yeah, it's it is it is interesting. It's I mean we are very much looking at this in light of the New Testament, and I mean I think of um, when uh, the Jesus walked with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, and he began to open to them the scriptures, all of the things that were said about him, you know, and they, you know and they say you know didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us, um, and I think that you know that very much is the case. It's like. Um, a lot of this, if you if you lived before the time of Jesus, you would look at it and like, I'm not sure what that means. Um, but uh, we have the privilege of having this explained to us by Jesus and his apostles uh, in a way that we can go back and look at these prophecies and we can see just, you know, the amazing fulfillment of prophecy that God told us all these things were going to happen uh, before they happened. He he told us in explicit prophecies like we see in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and there's other places as well um, and he um, showed us 
just with typological things, you know, just the, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, things like that. Um, God over and over again prepared people and showed people that this was going to happen. I mean, that's, that's, in my opinion, one of the, one of the most powerful uh, testimonies to the truthfulness of Christianity um, is, you know, that we have this Christian message of what Jesus did, but it's not something that just, like, popped up in the middle of the first century. Um, it's something that is tied to this entire history going back centuries. And we can see God was preparing all of this stuff. Um, and this isn't just some weird religion that pops up where people claim somebody came back from the dead. Um, but it's just all built on this, this entire testimony of God as he's working through history. Uh, and, I mean, it just, it just all ties together. And it's like, how could this, could this just happen? It can't. Um, so it's a, I think that's a greater testimony to the truthfulness of, of the resurrection, the truthfulness of Christianity. You know, it, I was just thinking as you were talking, Chris, too, there, you know, we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament and they just fit together. Mm-hmm. But the reality was is that with the Old Testament, you know, it sort of was left open-ended mm-hmm. and the Savior had not come yet. Mm-hmm. And yet even the New Testament seems to give hint that there were other leaders or other people who had movements mm-hmm. that sought to deliver the Jews and, you know, could have been looked at as mm-hmm. this coming Messiah. Right. You know, they died, they were killed, you know, whatever mm-hmm. their, right. their end was. But there were sort of false starts in one sense. But this helps us to see that, no, this is the correct right. ending to the story, you know. Yeah, yeah. There, there was so. certainly an anticipation that, you know, that the Christ would come and deliver them. Yeah. But people just didn't really get what it was. But when the true thing happened, then it just like everything just fits into place, yeah. uh, which is why we can go back and look at these Old Testament passages and say, "Oh wow, look at look at how all of this pointed forward to what Christ accomplished." Yeah. Two guys on the Emmaus Road experienced the best Sunday school class in the history of mankind. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying in the book of Acts, right, where Gamaliel is saying, hey, uh, we've had these, this revolt from Judas of Galilee, we've had this revolt from this guy, that guy. <clears throat> and he says to the rest of the Pharisees, again, if it's another movement of man, it'll fail. If it's a movement of God, well, it might be kind of opposing God. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Yep. Indeed. And uh, and they, they were. Well, they were. They were, they were <laughs> opposing God. So. Anyway. If I remember right, they decided to, at the end of that conversation, they decided to beat them, right? <laughs> I mean, they let them go, you know, but it was like, we'll still beat them, though. So, anyway. All right. Well, so anyway, there's a there's a little survey of those things, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week, Ryan will uh, be teaching again, and we'll discuss the, uh, the perfection and scope of the atonement. So, a nice, nice heavy topic there, so... Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, truly, we, we, do, we are amazed at the way that you have orchestrated history, the way that you have uh, proclaimed what you would do uh, long before you did it um, and just have left us these records so that we can go back and we can see uh, your perfect plan uh, as it unfolded and as you, um, as you told us about it beforehand. And... Uh, Lord, I, again, I just, I just pray that uh, 
the, the truths of what uh, Christ accomplished would just uh, be burned deep in our soul, that, that we would truly uh, love these things, that we would think about them, that we would, uh, as a many-faceted gem, just turn it over and, and watch the light play on the different aspects of it, uh, Lord, just so that we can get a, a truer knowledge of, of what you have accomplished in Christ. And, um, <coughs> Lord, that it would not simply be academic knowledge, but that it would be um, something that changes our lives, that causes us to, uh, to desire to obey you, that we would um, love you more. And, Lord, just that in all things, that we would live lives that, uh, that glorify you, uh, lives that are worthy of the calling with which you have called us. And Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to be with us as we, uh, as we worship you. Uh, Lord, that just our hearts would be drawn to you and we would be focused on you. And Lord, that you would receive all of the praise and honor. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.